When I was a child, there was an annual ritual that I looked forward to with uncontrollable excitement. It was the publication of the Guinness Book of Records, and my family bought a copy every year. In those days, setting world records was rare and the book didn't record as many as now. Uh, today, there are over 40,000 records in Guinness's database and they update it every week to take account of whatever bizarre feat of human endeavour has been achieved in the previous seven days. Now, one world record I know will interest you is held by an Episcopal priest from Michigan, named John Albrecht. Father John's contribution to the world is so remarkable that you could easily call it superhuman, and it will possibly never be beaten. Albrecht preached the shortest sermon ever. Now we're talking. I'm sorry to tell you that his record is in absolutely no danger from me this morning, uh, or any morning. Uh, by the way, research has shown that if you took everyone who has ever fallen asleep in a sermon and laid them end to end, they'd be much more comfortable. Now, for a sermon to pass the scrutiny of the judges from Guinness, it has to meet three criteria. It must make sense, like that's ever stopped a preacher. It has to be on a Christian theme or Bible passage, and it has to say something meaningful. So, it's Sunday morning. You are in that Episcopal church in Michigan. Father Albrecht has already publicised his attempt to break the world record. The parish is gripped by anticipation. Mountains will move, hills will tremble, metaphors will not be mixed, nor infinitives split. Not a pew is empty and not a breath drawn as Albrecht climbs into the pulpit, mind clear, heart bold. He surveys the massed ranks of God's people, utters a silent prayer, shuffles his notes and proclaims love. And with that, he bows his head, turns, and descends the mountain. And that was his sermon. Now, I would do that too, but I don't want to plagiarise. Until that morning in Michigan, it is thought that Jesus held the world record for the shortest sermon. We read it just now in the Gospel lesson. It was his first ever sermon that we have recorded, and it lasted eight words. He's visiting his hometown, Nazareth. On the Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue and he is invited to preach. He reads Isaiah 61. The, Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he sits down, all eyes fix on him, and he preaches his eight-word sermon. Today... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
good news to the poor, freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, liberty for the oppressed. Today, it's all fulfilled in your hearing. Good news, freedom, recovery, liberty. Good news, freedom, recovery, liberty. It doesn't matter how many times you say it, the human spirit will never grow bored of these words. Our ears will never tire, our hearts never have their fill. This message inspires, excites and soothes. Good news, freedom, recovery, liberty. I hear these words and I see visions of human beings at their best. I see walls being torn down, enemies shaking hands, victims of unjust regimes stepping from their prison cells into the joy-filled streets, disabled people leaping, stretching, putting their heads back and laughing. I imagine every man, woman and child having enough, enough to eat and drink, enough to wear, enough shelter, enough love. Good news, freedom, recovery, liberty. I see the kingdom of God. In the UK, three weeks before a general election, the political parties publish manifestos. They are glossy magazines and they contain promises. If we form the next government, this is what we will do and they are vitally important documents. In the UK system, Parliament is sovereign and um, the party that has a majority of MPs can do whatever it wants without the threat of presidential veto or any other of the checks and balances that exist in the US system. So the parties spend months drafting their manifestos, working on the right words, making realistic promises, crafting loopholes. Because if the governing party fails to keep a manifesto promise, they will have lied to the electorate and risk being a one-term government. Jesus had a manifesto. This necklace of precious stones, good news, freedom, recovery, liberty. These are the solemn promises to the people. His declaration of what he will do in his ministry. The promise he makes to a needy world. The yardstick by which he invites us to judge his heart, his motives, his life. Good news to the poor. Freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, liberty for the oppressed. Now, Jesus' manifesto is bigger than we imagine. Sometimes people read good news to the poor, prisoner, freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, liberty for the oppressed, and they apply it just to their physical life. It is good news to the materially poor, the physically blind, people bodily incarcerated and politically oppressed. Others apply it to their spiritual lives, people oppressed, imprisoned and degraded by fear, guilt, addiction, prejudice, destructive patterns of thinking, 
So what did Jesus mean? When he said prisoners, did he mean people who are physically incarcerated in a facility, or did he mean people who are captive in a spiritual sense, like people living with addictions? And my answer is yes, both of those. Why do you need to choose? Why can't the good news of Jesus' manifesto be so good that it touches, heals, liberates all of human life, body, mind and spirit, personal, social and political? So when members of St. Paul's, who today are serving hungry people at the Mission Kitchen in Elizabeth, do that, good news is proclaimed to the poor. When Christian visitors go to prisons and spend time listening to inmates and supporting them, freedom is proclaimed. When a Christian eye doctor uses a week of her vacation to go to India to perform cataract surgeries on patients who can't pay, sight is recovered. When Christians devote themselves to prayer and giving for the sake of anyone who is suffering under political, social or material oppression anywhere in the world, liberty is proclaimed. But there's more. There's a fifth promise in Jesus' manifesto that I haven't mentioned yet. It's called the year of the Lord's favour. In the Hebrew scriptures, it's called the year of Jubilee, and it is amazing. One of the hardest challenges for politicians and economists today, whether they be left, right or centre, is the growing gap between the richest and the rest, and how for 40 years or so the income of the richest has grown dramatically, but the income of the rest has remained comparatively stable. Uh, by the way, if you know how to correct that problem, I, I will vote for you. <laughs> Ancient Israel had a way, and I warn you, it wouldn't get too many votes. It is recorded in the book of Leviticus, and it's called the Year of Jubilee. To us, it is mind-boggling. The Jubilee was every 50 years, and it was a year of forgiveness. In that year, all property that had changed hands in the previous five decades was returned to the original owner. Enslaved people were set free and debts were cancelled. Even the fields were given a year off with no planting and harvesting. Now the effect of this was to equalise the population. In an agricultural economy, land is how people were secure, and if every parcel of land stayed permanently in the hands of the family who originally owned it, then that family would never face poverty. If they fell into hard times and were forced to sell their land to put food on the table, it was only temporary. The speculator or banker who bought it would have to give it back within 50 years. There was a delightful description of what peace and prosperity in Old Testament times looked like. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree. 
a year of jubilee, a year of forgiveness, a year when we drop the debt that is owed us. Dare we declare a year of jubilee in our own lives? Dare we pronounce this the year of grace in our families, our workplaces, our social circles, our church? Who owes you a debt? It could be a financial debt or a debt of time, the debt of a favour, the debt of an apology. Who owes you one? You may have given them an hour of shoveling snow, a night of babysitting, a ride to the airport, countless invites to dinner, and it still bugs you that they have not returned the favour. They owe you. You silently accuse them of being ungrateful, of taking advantage of your friendship. Well, this is the year of the Lord's favour. Declare a jubilee drop the debt. You may have been hurt by someone, slandered, insulted, lied to, disrespected. They owe you. They really do. What they did to you was grievous. It has cost you your happiness, destroyed your trust, wrecked your friendship. You deserve to be treated better than that. They owe you an apology. They owe you an amends. Well, this is the year of the Lord's favour. Declare a jubilee. Drop the debt. Your spouse, your child, your elderly parent, your sibling, they owe you. You have made huge sacrifices for them. The hours, the years you have given up, the money you have spent, the decades of putting yourself out for them, relegating your wishes for them, forsaking your pleasures and ambitions, even your career for them. Yes, they owe you. Well, this is the year of the Lord's favour. This is the year of choice, resentment or dropping the debt. Contract or covenant, cold dead justice or jubilee. Jesus invites us to a year of jubilee, a life of jubilee, but it cuts us up and tears us down, it slices us every which way. If we choose jubilee, if we drop the debt, if we refuse to call in what we are owed, we will know the pain of sacrifice, the fear of letting go, the affront to our sense of justice. But we will know other things too. Good news, freedom, recovery, liberty, and the year of the Lord's favour. Amen.